0: our series in 1 Peter, holiness in the midst of hostility. And today we come to really a part two of a message that Travis began last week. We're looking at verses 18 through 25. He covered up through about verse 21. My aim is for us to see verses 22 to 25. And we're really looking at Christ's suffering here as the not only mindset and model of our suffering, but also as the means by which we do it well. So just keep those three words in mind today. There's a mindset Travis talked about, and today we're going to see the model that he gave us and how it is the means for us to do that well. Now I want to just give you just a brief review because I think this will help set the text for us today. We're looking at a portion of Scripture, verses 22 to 25, which really is the heart of the book. Did you recall how I outlined 1 Peter for you? That really there are two sections to 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through about 2, uh, 10-ish, really discusses our uh, secure position in Christ. So much of the language in this chapter and a half is all about God's work of salvation for us and in us. And then he moves in verses 0, 11 and 12 to really kind of what we call a bridge text. He moves and uses that to kind of help us see why this secure position is so important because we have a certain privilege, and that certain privilege is suffering. It's not what we often think. It's not a country club mindset. It's not something that, oh, we're, we're going to you know, get the, the, win the lottery, This certain privilege that's so discussed in the rest of the book is this idea of suffering just as Christ suffered. And so it's very counterintuitive. It kind of goes against the grain of what we expect and how we think. And so we begin to see why it's so important that we have a a grasp on our secure position because the certain privilege is that we are going to suffer as Christ suffered because the servant is not greater than the master, in fact, we would say that verse 21 is the key verse of the book. It's the verse which really contains the, the center of the target. The crosshairs of everything Peter writes centers in on verse 21. And then 22 through 25 just amplifies this. And that's where we are today. Looking at this beautiful, and I would use the word delicious, set of verses that's so Um, magnanimously show us our Savior in all of his grandeur and beauty. So what I want to do is I want to show you this text. I'll underline, highlight, mark for you via our lab kind of what it says to us. I'll give that to you in one sentence. I hope to do this before 920. And then from 924, I want to take some questions. Because this text and the section it's in, I think what they do for us is they, they challenge us about the way we're living. And so we get suddenly bombarded with lots of questions about our circumstances and our responses. And so I want to take some of those today. If you have questions, be sure to just text them in, um, email them, I won't be able to get those on the spot. We'll get your text ones on the spot. We'll take whatever we can. Here's my plan today. I think at first it'll seem a little classroom ish. It will then become more conversational ish. But my prayer is at the end, it will be very convictional ish. <laughs> you laugh, but you just wait. I've <laughs> been rowing this boat for weeks, and I've got lingering questions and curiosities, and I am consistently convicted about my own lack of humility to those around me, to those above me, my desire for it, and yet the great difficulty I find in pursuing it. Let's see if we can have you join me in that boat today. Let's first go to our text via our lab. Can we do that? Here's what these verses just after the key verse say to us. And there are five general things I want you to see. First of all, notice that These verses are describing now this example that we're to follow. Remember verse 21? He left us an example that we should follow in his steps. So here's his example. He says, first of all, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So this speaks of his actions. And I am pretty confident the actions he's speaking of here are not just the actions when he was on trial Tortured, betrayed, and crucified. I think he's speaking here of the actions of Christ in his whole life. He says here definitively that Christ was sinless. He committed no sin. We're going to see why this is very important later when we realize that he bore our sin in his body on the tree. We'll see Peter's version of the great exchange the guilt, uh, the, the innocent one for the guilty one. And here he establishes the simple fact that Jesus committed no sin, not in his body or in his language. Now, as we get into this understanding, some scriptures for you to kind of write down that are corollary, companion scriptures that will help you digest this section. First of all, much of what Peter discusses in this um, whole section is found in Isaiah 53. 53. He pulls a lot of words, a lot of language, a lot of concepts from Isaiah 53. You'll see it and hear it, but I would encourage you in your small group, around your dinner table and your personal devotions, read Isaiah 53 this week, as well as this section. Also, as I mentioned, Travis discussed the mindset last week. I'm going to point an arrow back to the previous verse. You're going to see that he also talks here about the model and then we're going to see here the means. I've mentioned these words before. Just keep them in front of you. They'll explain much of the five words you're going to see. So we see that with his actions, he was sinless. We also see that with his reactions, he was sinless. Write in the word reaction here. And I write this word reaction in contrast to action, because notice the words used, reviled. He did not revile in return. You notice that? And then when he suffered, he did not threaten. I find that word intriguing because often that's what we do when we can't make things even on the spot. We say things or we think things like, well, I'll get you later. Or you'll pay for that. We know that we can't solve it in the moment. So we... We think we're enduring injustice and we're suffering wrongly, but then mentally we say, well, I'll I'll right the wrong later. We threaten. The Bible here says that Jesus did not commit any sinful actions with his body or language, and even when he was reviled and he suffered injustice, even in those moments, he did not sin by thinking or saying, I'll get you back later. I mean, what a... a, uh, a perfect holy savior, God among us. And you're seeing this lived out now. Then notice this: his actions and his reactions were sinless, and his response was perfect. And his response can be summed up in the word entrusting. So just write the word response. And you you could assume this was a reaction. I chose another word to use because. In his response, he's saying no to wrong reactions and he's saying yes to the right response, which is to entrust himself to him, speaking of God, who judges justly. Now, let me just be very transparent and somewhat scholastic about the text here. This is a very good translation of this phrase. However, the word himself, do you see this here? Put a cloud around it. Technically, it's not in the original language. It's a good uh, implication. So I'm not saying that it's not helpful. These guys are way smarter than me, all right? But if I just took the Greek New Testament, it would say he continued entrusting to God or to him who judges justly. My sense is this. He did not only entrust himself, he entrusted the entire situation including his enemies. And so Jesus, in those moments of betrayal, mock trials, um, crucifixion and torture, he not only entrusted himself, he entrusted the whole situation to God, such as the treatment of those who were mistreating him, which is why he would pray, "'Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.'" He was praying for justice to those who were punishing him. He was praying for their forgiveness. So this is an amazing thing that in the middle of this incredible injustice and mistreatment, this suffering, here's Christ's response. He entrusted everything into God's hands. This is perhaps the action of someone who's humbly submissive. you recall the two words we've been using for weeks now? To have a humbly submissive posture to those who are in authority over us? This is perhaps what that looks like. When you can't control and can't change what's happening to you, you entrust the entire situation to God. This is what Jesus did, and this is the one we're called to follow in his steps. I've got four minutes left to try to finish up two verses. Can we do it? I think we can. So we see his actions, his reaction, and his response. The first two are sinless. The third, his response, is righteous. And now we're going to see the reason that was necessary. Notice that Peter now turns from the practical to the theological. He moves from talking about this model and now he speaks of why this model is so empowering. Like there's more to this model than just imitation. We're not just to go out and say, well, I'll be like Jesus. We actually have to see that what Jesus did empowers us to follow him. There's more than imitation on the table. There's this idea of, of regeneration, of what of we can call it digestion. We have to do more than just say, well, I'll try to do what he did. We have to actually ask him to empower us by what he did to then follow what he did. And this is why Peter goes to such a theological statement next. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Here's the reason. The reason that we, we can follow the model that we can have the mindset because Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And the entire church says what? Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Look how Peter here so clearly spells out what happened on Calvary. He himself, a very personal uh, way to describe Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. So you see the idea of bearing our sins in his body. You think of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. This is what Jesus did for us in a physical, historical, time and space manner. He was our substitute. He was our penal substitute. In other words, he bore our sin. He paid our price. He took our place. He accepted our penalty. Jesus did this for us. That's incredible suffering. He did this so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, that's an overarching phrase that really describes the whole concept of salvation in Peter's world. Paul spent much of Romans describing it, Peter does in other places talking about it. But here he just kind of summarizes it by saying when Jesus gave his body on the tree to pay for the sins of the world, here's what should happen. You should die to sin and live to righteousness. Let me explain to you what that means in practical terms. It means that when Satan pulls the leash, pulls the leash that he thinks is still around you, you don't have to follow. Practically, this means that you do not have to give in to sin. It does not have power over you. It does not, as Paul would say, have dominion over you. It doesn't rule you. Why? Because Christ paid the price for sins. He bore it in his body. The word tree there is not the word for cross. It's the word for tree. Probably hearkening back to the Old Testament when those things which were cursed were hung on a tree outside the camp. And so Christ was cursed for you. He bore your shame and your sin. And because he was raised from the dead and satisfied fully all that was expected by God, he has broken sin's power over his people. So, church, you don't have to sin. Do we sometimes? Yes. We think that leash is still on our neck, and when Satan pulls, we have to go. I regret every single sin I commit not only because of its hurt to other people, to my own soul, but because I know I actually don't have to. Christ's death has freed me from sin. I'm now dead to it. I'm alive to righteousness. I'm following the Spirit. I'm indwelt by the Spirit. I can live to righteousness. I wear His righteousness. I can live in that fashion. Oh, for this to be seen more and more in my life and in your life. Amen, church. The power of the cross I like watching Shark Tank. And on that show, my favorite host is Mr. Wonderful. Because of the simple phrase, when he's done with an idea and he's not going to invest any money, he says, you're dead to me. I'm not vouching for his politeness, all right? It's a show after all. But that's the attitude we should have when it comes to Satan and sin when they come to tempt us with an illusion, when they come to show us something that actually will only be fun for a season, when they come to draw us away from actually what is helpful and healthy and right into what is actually destructive, when they gloss over the price you'll actually pay, when all that's occurring, we should say, you're dead to me. And we can because of Christ's death for us. So this is the reason that we can take the actions that model the life of Christ, especially in moments of suffering. And then Peter begins here now to just summarize again the result of Christ's work on the cross for us. Here's a further description of What it means to die to sin and live to righteousness. Look what he says next. By his wounds, you have been healed. Do you love that? When he died, he healed you. Spiritually, he brought life to you in the middle of your death by his death. This is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And then, of course, he explains more about what that means. Notice the word for here. It's an explanatory phrase to verse 24. For you were straying like sheep. That's Isaiah 53, isn't it? Verse 6, all we like sheep, we've gone astray. But he says, here's what Jesus Christ has done through his death. He has now turned us around, and we've gone to the shepherd and overseer of our souls Referring to Christ, only Christ is called the shepherd of the sheep in the New Testament. So whereas him in verse 23 refers to God, here I think Peter is referring to Jesus. And he's saying, we've been turned around. The word returns a little confusing to me. It indicates perhaps that we were with Jesus and now we got away and we came back. I don't think that's the the sense of the word in the text. It really means to be turned around. And so we're straying, like Isaiah 53 says, we're wandering, we're lost But Christ in his death, he turned us around. We're back now to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Now, let me just make a comment that what Christ is healing and what he's overseeing, what he's shepherding is our souls, right? See that? So any person that says to you, any prosperity gospel preacher that says to you, ah, that phrase, by his wounds you've been healed, you're guaranteed healing. They're actually not telling you the truth. Now, I don't think This excludes physical healing. But I can tell you factually and grammatically and theologically, this doesn't guarantee your healing. I would say textually, it speaks to spiritual healing. Here's why. You'll be surprised at how simple this is. What are the last two letters of the word healed? Same with me. E-D, it's past tense. If you maintain, as some prosperity gospel preachers do, this verse guarantees physical healing, then technically, based on this verse, you should never even get sick because this is in the past tense. Are you with me? It says that it already took place. So really, if you think this guarantees physical healing, you should never even get sick because this already happened. The truth is, he's here speaking of what our souls have experienced. There's nothing in this whole context that relates to a physical healing It's about Christ's work on the cross to save us from our sins, to make us alive to righteousness. So church, don't hear me say that we can't be healed physically. I am a convinced follower of Christ that he heals physically, but it's not guaranteed by this phrase. This is a phrase guaranteeing that at the cross, Jesus healed the most important part of you and that was your soul. And so for all who believe, here's what I can guarantee, that when you confess, repent, and accept Christ as your Savior, He will heal you fully, spiritually, internally. He'll change your soul, change your eternal destiny. I can promise you that. I can guarantee you that. That's what this verse says. And so the result of Christ's work is that we've been healed spiritually. We've been returned to Christ, turned around to Christ, and now we can follow in his steps by living a life that models the very life he lived. So in short, I just would simply summarize these delicious verses in this way. In fact, let me have you read it with me, okay? Because I want to make sure you, you get the two words that we're really trying to press in today on. And that's this. Christ's unjust suffering is not only our model for life, it's our means to life. Do you catch that? Because often folks will read verse 21, then read here, and they'll say, well, that's just a good model to shoot for. And the sense is that it's only about imitation. I'm here to say this is about way more than imitation. Christ is not just giving you a suggestion to you know, try to live like me. It's a good way, to, good way to go. He's saying the only way you can live like me is through what I did for you. It's all about empowerment by the cross so that you can imitate Christ. So these verses describe, yes, the mindset previously, of course, the model in the middle, but the means by which that can happen. So together, church, will you say this simple take-home truth with me today? Then we'll dive into some questions. Together, Christ's unjust suffering is not only our model for life, it is our means to life. I didn't make it by 9.20, but I was close. Let me take a few minutes and answer some questions I think that have arisen. Maybe you've texted some in. I got one over email yesterday I want to start with. It's a fantastic question. It's probably the question that everyone's wanting to ask but is afraid to ask. This person asked it in a beautifully humble way. Let me tackle this one first, and then we'll maybe try to take two or three questions see if we can squeeze them in. He actually asked four questions to begin, Then he spends some more time in his email and he says, let me rephrase the questions. I'll read you all five. Is that okay? Because you'll you'll kind of sense like, that's what I've been wondering, Todd. He says, I'm curious where the line is drawn when being asked to knowingly do self-harm to your body, perhaps under the guise of doing something for the greater good of others. He's asking about humble submission. Like, Do we have to do that? When we are being asked to knowingly do self-harm to our body. Here's the second question. What do we do if someone in authority is asking us to do something we know is harmful to ourselves? Now he rewords again. Are we to simply submit to them without question? Or do we protect our bodies and the health of others by speaking up about potential dangers? He goes on. At what point is discernment allowed when a topic is not mentioned in Scripture? Then he says at the end. Okay, the shorter question is this. And by the way, the, the email is fantastically humble, honest. It's, it's a beautiful email. He says, where is the line where healthy discernment is okay for Christians to politely push back on human institutions or authorities asking them who are asking them to do something to their bodies that they are not comfortable with, especially when not ad- specifically addressed in the scriptures? That's a great question. In fact, most of you are probably wondering that question about some area. Like, well, Todd, do I, do I have to all the time? Like, what's going on with that? It's a great question. So I'm gonna answer it, okay? Best I can. I think probably here, there, he is probably speaking about vaccinations. It's probably what he's asking about. I suspect he didn't say that, so that is an assumption I'm making. I don't think it's a far-off assumption, but I could be wrong. But I'm assuming he's asking about that. So I'm gonna answer it based on his questions. And I would say this, if it's not a law, you're free to choose, so choose wisely. I think perhaps one thing I want you to hear from me is this, and from Travis and our elders is this, when we speak of humble submission as the general posture of our, of our life. We're not saying that when you are given the freedom to choose, that you, you can't make your choices. Are you with me? We're saying that when you make your choices that are still legal, then please make them with humble submission. If they were to go against a suggestion by a governing authority, you don't, you have that freedom. I know you guys love that word. I'll even use this word. Some of you love you have that right. I think the question you have to ask yourself is this. How am I exercising my freedom and my right? Because my, my, Take is that the pandemic? I'm just going to get really transparent and kind of shoe leather honest with you. It has revealed that many of us force our freedoms in a way that suddenly doesn't seem at all very humbly submissive. It's like our posture is legal, but it doesn't seem very biblical. Ouch. I think we're in the convictional part already. I'm speaking here to the guy preaching. I've done this, knowing that I've had room under our governing authorities to make different choices, and I've chosen A, another friend has chosen B, and sometimes my posture then was one of arrogance, better than thou-ish. I've experienced that on the other side, where my choice wasn't aligned with another friend's choice, and I sensed that they were more on the arrogant, better than thou-ish, why aren't you seeing the light, Todd? kind of spirit. What would have been helpful is for both of us to realize we are in what we call conscience, conscious, excuse me, conscience areas. And what's required for all of us in those moments when we, when we can actually choose, even in the middle of governing authorities who are suggesting strongly, but there's not a law, then we're not breaking the law. There's no mandate upon us saying that you have to do this so we are free to choose. So even in those moments, we have to exercise and exhibit humble submission. So I just want to make sure you answer the question. You are free to follow your conscience in humble submission to God and with humble acknowledgement that others can do differently. They were asking, where's the line for discernment? And, and should I... You know, do, can I have the freedom to do something that's, to not do something they're asking of me when I think it's harmful to my body? I think these are conscience areas. And so we have to then say in submission to God, how can I follow through so that I don't violate my conscience, or the Bible calls it sinning against my conscience, and still exhibit humble, submissive spirit to those around me? Can I say to you, that is no easy task. I don't think this is an easy answer. You think it's easy for a collection of 800 plus people with varying opinions on things that get very personal? You think that's easy to navigate? Do you see why it is incumbent upon you as a member of this church to pursue humility, and to love at all costs, because you will disagree with someone near you on a number of things, probably. You'll disagree with me on some things. I'll disagree with you, your small group. In areas where there's not a scriptural mandate and the conscience must rule, this will happen. And one of the things that frustrates my soul is when churches let those become the major thing. And so there's just splinters, there's factions, and people are in their camps of opinions and preferences as opposed to trying to figure out, even amidst all of our different conscience opinions, how can we stay on mission for God? Because that is my goal, to lead you to accomplishing the mission for God. Even in a pandemic, even in a a culture that's ramped up on things that are, they're unbiblical and wrong. In the middle of, uh, of a culture that's, uh, you know, deathly dark, how can we stay together for the mission of God, for the making of disciples of all nations? I don't want to get distracted. And in all transparency, I don't want you distracted either. So I love this question. And so, in, again, to repeat the answer, because I think it will help us. You are free to follow your conscience. Discern well, look closely. If you are free to choose, then use your conscience and God's word and place yourself in humble submission to God and then humbly acknowledge that others can do differently and not be out of step with God. Often we wanna turn conscience areas in which the law has not, our legal authorities have not mandated something we want to take that and then say, okay, here's what everyone else should do. And it becomes a legalistic point for us. And we grab it as a club and beat folks over the head. But in return, and in regards to vaccinations, I've heard that. Some have mandated and said, you know, in their own personal list, you should never have, uh, do it. Others have said, you, everyone should do it. And there's no verse about it. And some have taken some verses and said, well, you should apply it this way. And other folks have said the other, the opposite. I'm saying it's a conscience issue. And so, even when it's a conscience issue, you have to exhibit humble submission, first of all, to God, how He's leading you through His word and your conscience. And then you have to exhibit that to others who actually have the same right you do and may land in a different place. I just used the word right, it wasn't my goal there. I'm not a real fan of that word right now. But I think you get the hint, right? So, can you exhibit humble submission to God and others, even in areas in which you disagree? I think that's the answer to his question. Now, I want to address one more thing, then we'll take two questions from our text line. And this is where it it really gets uh, fun for me. He says to me in his email, I think he's uh, onto something here. He says, my sense is that the last few sermons have leaned towards being called to passivity. So I, I grant him that. That in our American culture, in our Western mindset, what you've heard from Pastor Travis, Pastor Ed, and me would lean towards you thinking we're asking you to be passive. But here's what's happening. Humility is anything but passive. And we've adopted more of an American definition than a biblical definition. I'd remind you what Jesus said about himself. Three words. He said he was meek, gentle, and lowly. On this point, I was very convicted because at first I thought, yeah, I don't wanna make folks feel like they should be passive. And I realized humility isn't passivity. It's actually a very active word. It's in fact the hardest trait you will ever develop. And you can develop it. You know, it's one of the only traits or even we may call it fruit of the spirit of what you're commanded to do personally. Humble yourself. So there is some action you take, and I'll just tell you from a first-person perspective, this is the hardest thing to do. So it can feel like you're being passive when you're being mistreated and unjustly experiencing things to actually entrust that whole situation to God. That can feel very passive. I grant that. But it actually may be instead biblically very humble. And I just want to challenge you along with me. Let's make sure that when we hear biblical words, we don't filter them through American definitions, American culture. God calls us to humility. And is there the possibility that that could look like you're being passive? I probably would say yes. I wonder if folks thought Christ was being passive. My mind went right to Peter when he took the sword out and he chopped the ear off of Malchus. Remember that? And Jesus said, Peter, put your sword up. Did Peter think, really? Like right now we need it more than ever. Like that's probably what I would have said. You too. Did Peter think, Christ, you're being so passive right now. Maybe, I don't know. I'm just saying to you that it is, this is a, a beautiful email. And I'm convinced that often as a church, we're quicker to accept Western ideas that fit the way we want to live than biblical principles that direct the way we should live. And could this be one of them? That we're to always have the garment of humble submission draped around us. Even in times we disagree and choose within our freedom a different direction, could it be that humble submission should always be the garment we're wearing? Yes, that may be one of those areas where we think we're being passive, but actually we're donning the beautiful garment of humility. Just think it through. This is a tough area. I don't think this answer uh, suffices every situation, but I am glad he asked it, and I hope it helps you think through how to exercise the freedom you do have in a biblical way. That it's often not your freedom that people are questioning. It's the face of it and how it looks. Could the church say amen? We've got maybe time for one or two more. Do we have one or two more ready to go? I'm going to turn and read it from here. It's a little larger. Is it important for a, and I've not seen these ahead of time, so you may get an I don't know, all right? Is it important for a believer to discern if their suffering is just or unjust? God is omniscient, and obviously we are not. Possible suffering for past sins done in ignorance or forgotten in our own spiritual fullness. So is it important? I would say it would be important because it will help you know what you're dealing with. Is it necessary? No. If you're not sure why the suffering is occurring, if you think this may be a, a, a result from my sin, this may be from my own stupidity, perhaps it would be helpful to know that and maybe it's important, but is it necessary? No, precisely because of what the question says. God is sovereign and all-knowing and he's gonna work everything to the good of those who are his children and the good there is that you'll be conformed to the image of his son. Good question. Let's see if we can take one more. Since Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming Messiah, who or what was their example of Christ-likeness? That's a really good question. I'm not sure how to answer this in the moment. Um, I want to say technically it's Christ because of the writings of the New Testament authors. They pointed them to Jesus, but I know that The Old Testament saints didn't read the New Testament authors, so I'm a little um, hindered here by my own ignorance. Um, I would say, more than likely, they trusted in what God gave them concerning the Messiah that was to come. So when you read Isaiah 53, it's in a passage that talks about the suffering servant of the Lord. As the New Testament unfolded and the life of Christ, we know that Jesus was that suffering servant. At that time, as they read that, they began to realize, okay, this is what this Messiah will do. And so perhaps by his example, they picked that up. Um, That's about the best I've got in the moment, but I'll take a shot at this again on an Extra Point podcast. Is that a fair deal? I love hard questions. Sorry I'm not a genius and answer them on the spot, but that's a great question. There's probably a better answer than what I just gave you, so we'll tackle it on round two. Let's do one more because so I don't end on that note. <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, let's do one more if you got one. That's all of them? Okay, don't put that last next time. I, it helps me out there. Right? <laughs> uh, you can tell even by the questions and this email and just even what's in your heart that there is a, a road ahead of us to navigate when it comes to living humbly submissive that is difficult. Would you agree with that? And would you just uh, affirm my own predicament at times that humility is the hardest thing to pursue? Would you agree with that? And I find it so difficult. I find my pride wants to rise up at the oddest of moments with the people I love the most usually. This is why this Section is so important for us because we can't pursue a humble, submissive posture if we don't have Christ to empower us to follow his model. So, can I just show us the take home truth once more? Can we read this as we close and then we'll go to communion and wrap this up? This is really these verses in a nutshell. Together, church, Christ's unjust suffering is not only our model for life. It is our means to life. And if you're not tapping into that means daily, if you're not letting the gospel be your source and your fuel, you'll proceed to be proud in a lot of your interactions and not humbly submissive. Even when you have the the opportunity to choose differently, you'll do so in a way that seems arrogant. Instead, let's make the gospel... The foundation of our daily um, protocol, so that we're entering into every interaction, conversation with the humility of Jesus. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, an odd message in some ways. I just sensed earlier a few weeks ago the need to have some Q&A time, and this has been helpful to me and helpful to our church, I hope. I don't want to end on notes of ambiguity per se. So God, I pray that in our curiosities, in our um, rightful disagreements, in our preferences and opinions, in all of these conscience areas, you would grace us with a humble submissiveness to you, first of all, and then to acknowledging that others can choose differently and we can be in the same family and get along. But God, when your word speaks clearly... I pray we would have the humility to get up under its weight and not negotiate with you. So, Lord, in regards to that, you have spoken clearly about your mission. It is to see disciples made from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue, it's for the church to be proactive and persistent in getting the gospel outside of its own walls. So, Lord, would you convict us of our disobedience to that and our unwillingness at times to submit to that? Would you call us out of our comfort zones and laziness? And would you, God, and I mean this with, with a clear conscience, would you cause us even to release our, our legal rights, if necessary, for the advancement of of the gospel that if it were better for the cause of Christ to be humbly submissive to our governing authorities even in perhaps a suggestion if that is what you would allow our conscience to do may we be willing to release even things that we could claim for what is most important Lord these are hard things to pray they're hard things to say oh God for a church for an entire flock flooding the mission of God. That is our prayer. Every single member, all about developing devoted followers of Jesus. God, I pray you would grace us and blanket us with a humble submissiveness to that end game.